It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I find myself smiling from ear to ear if you're not watching the video and able to see that from me and my guest today, Mike. We are going to talk about happiness and from some different angles here, having fun, discovering ways to invite more fun in your life, which I think was right there at the top of your website, Mike. I think that that is a really great place to start because I feel like at least from my perspective, spending time online, talking to people, obviously having guests on the show. But I spend a lot of time on TikTok because I find for me, it's a really interesting place to learn, but also kind of have my finger on the pulse, if if that's the right term of like, what's going on. Of course, TikTok is known for its demographics being on the younger side, although I'm a nerd and statistically that's not true. I did a presentation recently and found out that it spans so many ages. Even 50 plus, I think was like 11% of the age range on TikTok. But under 50, it was very even amongst all the different age groups in terms of how much time they're on that platform, which makes it really interesting to learn about what people's experiences are. And at least from what I'm picking up on TikTok, it seems like a lot of people are feeling very down, very frustrated. They're seeing life through this lens of, wow, we never get a break. In fact, just last night, I saw a TikTok video that I felt like encapsulated a lot of this, which was, it felt like we had 10 minutes between the pandemic and now the recession. And then, of course, throughout that, we have a lot of violence in the world that we're seeing. We have a war going on, or at least the beginning of a war, perhaps. We have inflation. I mean, I could go on and on. And the media in general outside of TikTok is covering a lot of this. If you turn on the news, if you read the news online or in a paper, there's a lot. And I think that there is a deep desire to invite more fun into life and to pursue happiness. But what we're going to discuss today is the challenges behind that. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about what I shared. What is, I guess, your perspective on the world right now, Mike? From where you consume media and where you connect with people, what would you say the general feeling that you observe is about people's state of mind? Yeah, I think right now it is an interesting time, right? And so a lot of my research, sort of the underpinning comes from social determination theory. And so one thing we know about that is that in both from looking at folks that thrive in the workplace and just thrive in general, is that a big piece of what makes us feel good is the sense of autonomy and agency that we have over our lives, right? And so I think what's happened during the pandemic specifically to address your question is that we lost that sense of autonomy. And to some degree, because there is a lot of uncertainty right now still, right, with regards to the economy and 
social things at play. It's when can we get our footing and believe that we do have that. And the truth is, to kind of jump right into things, is that we always have that, right? Actually, that's not with notable exceptions, right? Like during the pandemic, if you believed in the greater good, you did give up some of that because that was the right thing to do during that time. The problem is that happened for such a length of time that a lot of us don't know if it's safe yet. And that's a genuine question to ask, right? I mean, certainly by the numbers, it's actually less safe right now. But we do have the ability to sort of regain control over how we experience our day to day. And so it comes from a place of privilege to say, to some degree, we're a product of our choices, because sometimes really shitty stuff happens, right? And we can't control that. We certainly can't control external stimuli. But we do have some agency about where to place our time. And we also have the ability to reframe things in a way, as long as we're biologically sound, in a way that is in a framework that makes us feel good about the things that we do. So that's sort of the underpinning and the brief summary of you know <laughs> what you would find in my book. That the additional piece that's important is what we found, and this is especially prevalent in the Western world, is that there is a problem about chasing happiness. And so I always nuance it this way, and I got this work from Dr. Iris Mouse, so I don't want to appropriate research that I'm really just regurgitating. She's out of Cal Berkeley, and her and her colleagues have looked a lot at the cultural aspects of how we perceive happiness, right? And what makes folks from collectivist cultures different than individualist cultures like we are in the West, right? So there's this distinction in the West that we have desired happiness for so long that we become concerned about it. So I want to make that distinction that it's okay to value happiness because I still value happiness or I wouldn't have written a book that's in that happiness elk, right? But where it becomes problematic is a lot of us are overly concerned about how happy we are too and tend to spend way too much time perseverating on over-engineering these tactics to make ourselves happier. But what happens instead of taking action, we're actually just sitting there concerned about our own happiness, right? And so this is actually now kind of out there in the ether. So I feel like, you know, if you follow <laughs> Elizabeth Gilbert about ideas sort of being these tigers that you chase by the tail, like now Dan Sullivan has kind of come out and talked about this in his own work, but I had a version of it that I feel like preceded it, but it doesn't matter whose idea it was because <laughs> your ideas are universal. The problem is that when you perseverate on something, your energy really focuses on the gap. That's the problem, is that when you're overly concerned about happiness, you're like, happiness is over here, and I'm here, and this gap is a problem. And so that obviously poses immediate problems, but it also causes long-term problems because what happens is that gap set starts to bleed into our identity. and okay, I'm chasing happiness, therefore I must be unhappy because in the moment you always aren't where you want to be. And then slowly but subconsciously, and this is empirically validated, that starts because identity is so important to how we feel and what we do. We now identify as an unhappy person, even if we wouldn't tell somebody that. It's like, I want to be here. I'm not there. So therefore, I'm the person that's here, right? And that's all subjective, but that's why in psychology, we call happiness subjective well-being because so much of it is how we perceive how we feel. Was that a lot? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that was great. I'm absorbing so much of what you're saying and reflecting on it too, because I feel, as I described actually in an episode I did on my own recently, this like 
pulsating through life. And it's something I've observed about myself recently. And maybe this is like what a lot of people experience. I'm curious if you do too, Mike, that I'll have like moments throughout the day of a high and then like a little bit of low and then I'll feel some stress and then like it'll dissipate. I'll get distracted by something or I'll go do something for my well-being. And it's been really interesting because I think before I thought about things that way, I would maybe like center my day around like one specific experience. And that would be how I viewed that whole day. Right. So it was like chunks versus pulses. I don't know, like I'm trying to think about the visual of it or even like a curve as we often plot data, we see a curve like maybe each day is on a certain point versus each day having its own little points throughout it constantly. It's been helpful because I know that everything is passing. So just as much as I might feel a low emotion, that's going to pass, but the high emotion will pass too. And I also kind of stepped away from trying to control it too much. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about these highs and lows and the gaps. Right now, I'm planning to do some travel. And it has been really challenging for me because (laughs) maybe it's I just have anxiety. I like to have things planned out and I'm trying to figure out all these details. It just feels like so intense, so much work, exhausting. And then I have to put myself in that place of, okay, I'm working towards going somewhere that I think is going to give me some happiness, but I have no idea what I will even feel once I get there. And so it's interesting because a lot of times that stress builds up and then you do something and you're like, wow, this was really worth it. And that worth it feeling feels so fleeting. And when you're talking about the gap here, I'd love to know statistically or just in the research that you've done, do you feel like most people are fixating on the stress and the challenges and that feels so much heavier and bigger in their life than the happiness? Does the happiness feel very fleeting short-lived? Does it go by really quickly and just feel dominated by the hardship? So there's a couple things to unpack from what you shared, right? And so certainly some advice I would give you about your travel is to figure out what you want to do and then sort of relinquish any expectation because where happiness becomes problematic is a few different areas, right? And so one, it's a product of comparing, right? And so what you're setting yourself up to do is compare reality against your expectations instead of accepting what might take place. And whatever it is, is going to be great, right? Because you're there. And that's not Pollyanna, but that's true. You've set yourself up for things. If you've done your homework, which it clearly sounds like you have, that should be an enjoyable. And if they're not, give yourself the grace and the space within your itinerary to pivot, right? So that's that. The other is with regards to experiencing happiness, that's the distinction I make, right? Like a lot of times when I get into these discussions, someone will have a pre-definition of what they believe happiness is. And ultimately, it's all about semantics, right? I really think as part of my research for the book, I talked to a bunch of linguistics and folks that are experts in linguistics, and you can go down deep rabbit holes, right? The one I think that's often talked about is how in the English language, we only have one word for love. And yet some of the more romantic languages can nuance that, right? And so do we only feel love in one way where other folks have this whole palette to express themselves? And happiness can be the same. We have this whole palette of emotions, but oftentimes we look at happiness as a bowling choice 
And so what I've done is juxtaposed it to what I call fun because fun is an action orientation, right? And we can always have fun. Like I'm not having fun right now. So let's go have fun doing the next thing. And that's a hypothetical with regards to your vacation, not us in the moment in this podcast. I'm certainly having a lot of fun right now. So that's the distinction, right? Is that we really enjoy things in the moment. And what we found about happiness, it really does require reflection. And so I had an amazing discussion with a researcher out of Duke. Her name's Jordan Etkin, where we kind of unpacked this. And so this is an idea I'm appropriating from her just to give attribution. But as soon as we have to start asking ourselves whether or not we're happy, we're out of the moment. We're almost not happy because we're now deliberating whether, hey, what's that? Something that made me happy? And so we get back to that problematic state of starting to compare. Now, the interesting thing there is that there's this adapting component too, right? In positive psychology, we talk a lot about the hedonic treadmill. And so we know that we weren't meant to be happy all the time because a lot of things that give us pleasure, especially from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, things like sex and food, if we were sort of satiated when it happened, we wouldn't do the things that biology want us to do, right? We wouldn't keep ourselves alive and we wouldn't keep procreating. So these ideas of feeling pleasure as a constant, it's just not in our makeup. And so once we accept that, some really interesting things happen, right? And so this is based on research. Sorry to geek out, just in case people want the footnotes from Barbara Fredrickson, as she calls it, broaden and build theory. And then Susan Cain just wrote an amazing book about it as well called Bittersweet is that we know that when we are in these states of melancholy, as long as they're not distressful, that gives us the palate to understand and really enjoy the times that are really amazing, as long as we're making sure that we deliberately place those in our lives too. Because we know what the difference is, right? And life isn't meant, we're all going to experience loss in some form or another, right? Whether it's a job, our parents, relocating. There's small deaths and there are big deaths, right? But death is a part of the human existence and those deaths are painful, right? So knowing that that, whether there is a creator or not, that we were meant to feel that way at some points in our lives and accepting that means that then we can take some control to limit those and experience more joy and delight by being deliberate about how we spend our time, knowing that those things will come and acknowledging them and mourning when we need to but then moving on from them. I love all of the data that you have because I could geek out about this too. I cannot wait to look up some of the books you're referencing. I didn't realize Susan Cain had a new one. So thank you for sharing that. I love to better understand why we're experiencing these things. It's interesting because I wonder sometimes like how much of it is nature versus nurture. How much of it is just human nature? This is how we are as a species versus how much are we nurtured into this behavior? How much are we encouraged? How much of it is capitalism convincing people that they're not happy enough and in order to be happy if they buy this thing? I mean, we hear that all the time and there's this mentality of you can't buy your way to happiness. But certainly it seems like we can feel some sense of happiness when we do purchase things. It might be fleeting certainly by going on experiences like travel. In fact, I remember reading something or maybe just seeing a social media post about if you travel a lot, like maybe you're just trying to escape life and chase happiness all the time. And I stepped back to think about it because the last three years I've been 
much more in a traveler's mindset than I probably I ever have in my life before. Oddly enough, this all unfolded during COVID. And so maybe that's part of the reason. Like, did I feel a lack of something during COVID? And I used travel as a way to feel better, to chase that happiness, to escape the mundane, right? So perhaps it is all interconnected. So there's two things to unpack there. So one, don't feel bad about experiences because hands down, science supports experience over things and that that evidence there has been replicated over and over again. Happy to send you some of those studies, especially for children, right? We know that the stuff that I really found fascinating with regards to kids and buying things is like how much creativity and fun gets sucked out when they are forced into the paradox of choice, right? So like you give kids two or three toys, they've got to get really creative about how to use them. If you give them, I'm making up these numbers because I forget the exact numbers in the studies, but so that I don't go down that rabbit hole. The short version is we know that experiential activities are better for our well-being, support our well-being as a generality than buying things. We certainly get a very short burst of excitement. And there's certainly some strategies on how to buy things, being mindful of how you'll use it, making sure it's not disposable. Anyways, that's just the backup that absolutely go on the trip and don't buy the thing, right? Because nine times out of 10, that's going to be the right choice. The other thing to unpack there is, is escapism bad? And so I looked at the research into that and escapism as a tool isn't necessarily bad. It's a great way to cope, right? There's two forms of escapism. There's one way that we escape for betterment. And then there's one that we escape, we use it to alleviate discomfort. And so the latter is what tends to be quite problematic, right? But for me, again, in the book, the kind of the, what kicks off the book is that I lost my younger brother at quite a young age, right? And so I was kind of lost. And so to kind of jump ahead, initially, I was trying to use all these tools of positive psychology, and they were failing me. And then I was using forms of escapism, but because I had an academic underpinning of how escapism could be useful, I went and did things that filled my cup up, right? I connected with friends that could lift me up and that I knew I wouldn't drag them down or be what sometimes referred to as an energy vampire, that there would be this reciprocity of melancholy over things that we could discuss. And then I started doing things to get my mind off stuff like kite surfing and things of that nature, really trying to learn new skills. Because in that moment, I could have fun, even though I didn't necessarily need to identify with being quote unquote happy. So escapism is a really useful tool if you check yourself and go, okay, am I running away from my priorities or not doing the things I need to do? Or is this a good use of my leisure time because I'm able to cope with things that don't feel that good? You use the example of the pandemic. I feel like we could all use some healthy escapism right now. In fact, that loops us back to the original concept, the beginning of the podcast, right? Absolutely. It is interesting to frame it that way. <laughs> Certainly for me, I was laughing over here thinking, wow, travel to me is such a balance of stress and happiness. Like Because really, just the way my brain works, I feel safer, more comfortable planning out the details. It's hard for me to do spontaneous trips, although... I like to lean into discomfort, so I will try to challenge myself with that. And on my last trip, I take a lot of road trips, usually these days with the pandemic, just about a month ago. I could not believe that that last trip went so seamlessly because I went in there thinking, well, 
I planned as best as I could. I'm going to let go and just see what happens. And very few things went wrong. And I came back from the trip thinking, wow. But what was interesting about that was observing how I felt a bit on high alert. Speaking of the anxiety I referenced earlier, I found myself having to practice not expecting something to go wrong. And that was an interesting thing because clearly previous trips were something that had gone wrong. I was trying to prevent all that stuff while knowing I'll focus on preventing one thing and then something else will catch me off guard. That's generally how life goes. But to not get wrapped up in making things stay balanced and safe for the whole time, that's part of my challenge. Like, That's part of why I do so much pre-planning is I'm hoping I can get it all out of the way and set my expectations as best possible. But travel is kind of like experiencing so much life all at once in a quick amount of time because there's so many factors that you're not generally exposed to in your day-to-day life, right? When I'm sitting here at my desk, my home, I have like a very controlled environment. But when you travel... You are like experiencing all different places and people and factors on and on. And so I can get caught up in the stress of that and finding myself like having trouble being in that moment you described earlier because I'm like waiting for the next shoe to drop, I suppose. But that sounds like not a fun place to be in. So do you have any strategies that are inherent where you can be like this moment is meant to be enjoyed. So I'm not going to worry about that next shoe per se, but really enjoy either the company of the people that I'm with or the experience that I've prescribed myself to. Absolutely. But it's still that pulsating thing that I would say. It's like, I find the pulse of the stress coming in and I have to like reel it in and say, okay, like uh, everything's fine right now. I'm okay. And I guess like, it's an interesting thing because just like any part of life, I observe something and then I think, okay, like, could I adjust that a little? Do I have to experience it that way? So it's nice to have this conversation with you before my next trip, because it gives me another opportunity to practice maybe, okay, this is where I struggle. Based on what some of the things that you're saying about happiness, if you don't want to chase happiness or force happiness, how do you get yourself out of that state of stress? Like, what if that stress is beneficial to you? And how do you identify? And and stress could be anything. It could be frustration. And some stress is good. Sure. Yeah, like it could be anything that's not happy. Let's say you're in a place where you would like to be happy instead. Do you force yourself into it somehow? Do you be intentional? Or do you kind of just let it flow in that present moment and just accept So again, I love these Stanford questions. I got that from Noah Kagan. I asked him these types of things and he goes, or you have to like give three answers. (laughs) So we'll start with, so you want to have a breadth of emotion, right? So let's start with, no, absolutely. The idea is not to engineer a perfect life, right? In psychology, we call it valence. My thesis is that we should have a bias towards positive valence, which means we're experiencing pleasure. If you are truly frustrated, that would be a negative valence state, right? That's something where if we're classifying emotions, as psychologists often do, we would say that's a negative emotion, right? And we're certainly not trying to get to a place where we don't experience negative emotions. We know once you start to do that, things can go off the rails. I mean, there's some of this is emerging research, but there are folks that have qualified 
research backgrounds that are starting to see when people are over-prescribed to positivity, you can actually create mental illness. That's not something that I focused on in particularly, so I'm not going to make that stance. But if you look in Google Scholar, there's a sense that we're doing true harm with toxic positivity. So should you worry when your body's telling you to worry? Absolutely. What is a strategy where you could potentially bias yourself towards more pleasure? One tool, again, borrowed from clinical psychology is to time block, knowing that you enjoy that. Go, okay, I'm going to give myself within your itinerary time at the end of the day to sort of worry about the details and then accept what may come the next day, right? And so you spread out what's important to you, what you need to resolve. Maybe for you, it's one experiencing that because you know what? I like to be melancholy too. Like, again, I'm borrowing this from, <laughs> from that recent Susan Cain title, but she brought up some research. I haven't looked at it yet, but that folks that like melancholy songs opposed to folks that like really uplifting songs tend to listen to those songs with more pleasure and like something like hundreds of times versus someone that listens to like a Pharrell song, you know, like tends to listen to that just dozens of times. And so folks that experience these rich emotions like you're describing likely also experience pleasure in a much more rich, non-superficial way, right? So I don't want to suggest to you that you shouldn't do that. But maybe what you do want to, because it does sound like there's some worry in there, is give yourself that grace that I'm going to do it during this period. This is a period that we've set aside for that practice. And then I'm going to try and work on really doing the things that I set up to be pleasurable and have pleasure doing those things in those moments. Maybe you can figure out the amount of time that you want to sit with negative emotions. Maybe over time, minimize that if that's something that suits you. If not, if you're actually like, you know what, sitting with these heady thoughts, I actually, in this paradoxical manner, find pleasure out of that, then extend it and say, I'm going to time block three hours to worry, whatever works for you. You know, that's another thing that's, we kind of got into it in the pre-interview. But one thing, if you're kind of taking this practice to the next level of figuring out how you can make your life more pleasurable, is understanding that any piece of advice you get may not work for you. And so play with it and throw it out. Like try and acquire as many tools as you can in your toolkit, read good books, listen to smart people. But if it doesn't work for you, then throw it out. The one sort of insight for me, well, there are a couple. One is that I kept trying to be a morning person. We kind of got into talking about hustle culture and like everyone said, you know, that was the magic hour. It's just not. I spent... <laughs> way too much time trying to like believe that nonsense. And for me, it's late at night, which is problematic because I have kids now. So like I've had to work through it, but waking up in the morning that is a disaster. I'm a mean person, you know, because I've... Anyways, that's one. Another one, which is more at a micro level, but just interesting is I think I got this from Tim Ferriss is that you can leave a book. Like I'm someone that a lot of my teenage angst was probably because I'm diagnosed ADHD. So I would leave things behind. So now that I've had a level of success, I realize that's because I've overcompensated for that. And so I will never leave a project unfinished, even if that project yields. And so Tim said, if you don't like a book, you can just put it down after like 20 pages. Like there's a high likelihood that you're not going to like the 180 pages later. And like, Sometimes it's just those little nuggets, right? Like just that little sage piece of advice saves me so much time because I'll just be like, I can tell by chapter two that this is crap. <laughs> Put another six hours back in my week to go do something more enjoyable. So 
all of these things tend to be pretty pedestrian, but it's little tactics like that, right? Like something that would have been agonizing or I would have spent hours reading a horrible book. Now I'm just like, this book is horrible. I'm going to go do something more fun. And so to bring it back to your question, I think perhaps you could do that. Like, why am I not enjoying myself on something where I'm investing my own money and time to be pleasurable and start experimenting with what might work for you without saying, oh, well, you shouldn't be worrying because that is asinine and toxic positivity. I'm so glad that you touched upon some of the, quote, toxic mentality. I mean, even the word toxic, like it's used as like clickbait and whatever else. It's so funny when you start to examine words, which something else I want to get in with you because we talked about linguistics earlier before we started recording. And I have a bunch to touch upon. But to address what you're saying here, first of all, I'm a night person too. And gosh, like it's crazy how much propaganda, I guess, there is around like the time you should wake up and (laughs) all the years that I've spent feeling shame or trying to change. But when I embrace it and just allow myself to be, I am somebody who is generally happiest if I can wake up after 10 a.m., and go to bed around 2 a.m. That is my ideal schedule. That is what I will go towards every time without fail, except when I'm traveling. Travel is the big exception because I really like being up early to have a lot of daylight, especially if I'm on a road trip. That's imperative for me. And so I'll like find myself in a different mode. And every trip I take, I think, oh, great. Like This means I can go back home And I will stay on this schedule, but without fail, within a week or so, I'm back at the 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. schedule. And what if I could just accept that? Like, who is it that's convinced me and other people that experience this too, that waking up at a certain time is imperative for success, unless there are circumstances like in your case, kids, or many cases, work. For me, that was one of the big reliefs I felt when I decided to start my own business, become an entrepreneur, work freelance, all the stuff I've done in the past 10 years, because I didn't have to adhere to that nine to five schedule I used to be on. Look at that funny thing, autonomy, helping support your well-being. <laughs> right. Ex- exactly. And thank you for pointing that out too, because I've realized just in the recent years that I haven't felt a lot of autonomy. Despite living a pretty flexible, fluid life, having a lot of acceptance around me, there's still a lot of mentality that I've almost felt caged in by because of all this pervasive messaging, like you're mentioning, that idea of the hustle as has been a topic on many episodes of this show. Clearly, I don't align with it. I used to though. You and I were bonding earlier, Mike, over all of these people we know in the entrepreneurship space. And I was saying how I don't follow those people as much as I used to because I feel like there's a lot of hustle culture tied to that. And I wonder for them how much they're shifting and either not acknowledging it yet because they don't feel like they can due to their audience, something else we talked about, or do they choose to turn a blind eye to a lot of that input around anti-hustle, capitalism, even patriarchy issues and racism and all of these things I'm learning that tie into our well-being. I feel like there's still not enough push. And I wonder like what would happen 
if Gary V was no longer known as like the king of hustle or whatever. I'm just putting that name on him, right? It's funny that you bring him up because he's really walked it back. So he has, but he's still known for it, that, right? Oh, sure. Like, yeah, well, I fully agree, but he's still known for that. Yeah, Crush It is basically an entire text that just tells you to hustle, right? And so I think I still have it up. I've taken down a lot of my entrepreneurial content from my website, but like, I think one of my original posts was celebrating him telling me not to watch Lost. I'm dating myself because Lost hasn't been out for a long time, but it was lit. It was some keynote where I was like, yeah, I got to stop watching Lost. That's the reason I'm not successful. How dumb is that? But I like, I was bright eyed and bushy tailed and I'm like, all right, so yeah, I guess I got to stop watching Lost and I'll start making money. Like I know because now I've <laughs> I've done the work, like that's actually the opposite of true. Now no, this work comes from Cassie Holmes, again, just adding footnotes to her. <laughs> but out of UCLA, we now know that if you're not sort of really taking ownership of two to five hours of your day, that you'll be less productive, right? So if you're looking at it as a function of math and productivity, even if it's knowledge work, trying to make the leap and looking at it as widgets, right? So like on any normal day, if you're working a 50-hour a week, you'd only produce one widget per hour, even if that widget is knowledge work. If you actually build in some resilience, and so you back that up to 35 hours a day, and then you're enjoying the other 15, but that allows you to be twice as productive, well, now you have 70 units of output. So how dumb is it to work 50 hours? But the problem is, And this has been well studied and this, I don't need to cite a bunch of stuff. We know that feeling busy, especially if you're A-type, is a way of escapism, right? Because it avoids that discomfort. Well, I'm sitting and responding to 200 random emails that aren't going to have any impact, but your body tells you you're working, right? And so what we know is that slowly grinds away at you and isn't actual work. It's busyness, right? As some refer to it. And it's a real epidemic right now. I meant Before the pandemic, a lot of what my work was focused around was alleviating burnout because burnout was already becoming such a problem pre-pandemic. And so that hasn't gone away, right? I mean, it's a more nuanced topic because people are like, well, how can you be burnt out with all this autonomy and work from home? And there are lots of reasons why we're even more burnt out. It's kind of gone down the tier of things that we were concerned about because they're frankly much bigger problems in the world right now, but it's still a big deal. So the long story short is that we now know that by being conscientious of taking time off for renewal, that we're just better people. And so one of the studies that I've hung my hat on, in fact, we talked about in the pre-interview that I'm finally going to get to interview one of the professors about it, is this amazing study out of MIT, Stanford, and Harvard. It had a huge sample group, 28,000 people, which is pretty spectacular for research in psychology. And they were looking at this idea that if we are in a negative valence state, do we want to escape that? And if we're in a positive state, do we want to continue to be positive? Are we truly pleasure-seeking animals, right? This idea of the hedonic principle. And what it found out was that indeed, when we think life is shitty, we want to escape it, right? We go do things like drink or try and connect with our friends. Again, these forms of positive and negative escape, depending on what you feel is necessary or potentially these negative consequences of negative escapism. But what was fascinating is they found that people that are actually enjoying themselves so that their fun cup is full, 
they look for opportunities for betterment. They're the ones that do the harder work. They're the ones that engage in service. They're the ones that have resilience to potentially put themselves in discomfort so that they can gain mastery in a certain subject or have the resilience to really be strong parental figures for their family. When I stumbled upon that, that was like, because I'd already had this huge corpus of evidence that fun was important, but now just making sure that you have good hygiene with regards to your valence and hedonic state is extremely important because we know the folks that do that deliberately are much better off. You do the harder stuff, you have more productivity, and frankly, you make the people around you happier too, because we know through social contagion that if you're doing stuff that's pleasurable, that generally transfers on to the folks that you're with. And so you can either create this upward spiral for yourself and others, or you can be non-deliberate about how you spend your time. And oftentimes that's when these negative spirals come about because again, we're perseverating on what we don't have. We're more miserable, our emotions skewed towards the negative, and then everyone around us is negative. And that's just science. It's not even just bird of a feather stuff. It's like, we now know that because we have these huge, immense data sets. So I've gotten way too deep into the science, but just believe me, all this stuff is real. (laughs) Well, it sounds like the science brings you pleasure. So I feel like leaning into that is supporting you and it's contagious, like you're saying. I mean, I love all of this. I love researching. I love learning. I love your footnotes. And this idea of being intentional and your book title for The Fun Habits, which comes out January third, right? So people do have to wait a little while, but can they sign up for like a newsletter or something to be notified? You could pre-order it now. Unfortunately, it was supposed to come out speaking of pandemic displeasure, but yeah, apparently with the zero tolerance COVID policy in China, like all books with major publishers, so they don't have anyone to man the printing presses. So it's very first world problem to, of course, we want everyone to stay well. That's part of my ethos, family and health first. So Um, Those folks need to stay healthy. But yeah, so apparently most of the major publishers are only printing about half the books that they had planned to print because they just don't have the capacity. That's fascinating. But in a way, January is such a great time to think about fun and happiness. I mean, I think it's people have plenty of fun this time of year, which is in the summer. We're recording this in June. Like it's interesting, right? Like how summer is associated with fun and something I could get into, but I'm not going to because I have so much. That I want to chat with you about, Mike, but like time is running out. So I'm like, okay, where are we going to focus? But I will say, I have tried to be more intentional about having fun this month. And it's so funny. I'm like, why am I like trying to have more fun just because it's summer, you know? And I was thinking about this the other day as I was driving back from some errands, how as a kid, it was summer was just natural. You just naturally had so much fun. Everything felt exciting. Although I do remember periods of boredom and complaining to my parents, wanting to go to like a water park or the movies or something like that and having struggling to find fun with my stuff at home. But as an adult, we don't always take or have as much intention and our work lives are generally not centered around that. Is it easier with having kids, Mike? Do you find yourself more aware of having fun with them or is (laughs) you're shaking your head? So I need to know the answer. No, I think you need to be deliberate. I am definitely not a parental expert, but I think because they call it the sandwich generation, folks that have kids and aging parents, my message is resonating with them. So a lot of times 
I'll go on podcasts that are specific to parenting and I'll like qualify. I probably don't have too much wisdom that's going to be specific about how you should engage with your children. But what we do know is that, again, this comes from some of those really interesting survey studies, that one of the least pleasurable activities is caregiving to children. And so you have to be really deliberate about how you want to parent if you want to make it joyful. And so there's some simple strategies just so that I don't gloss over it like, hey, this guy said that and then <laughs> that sounds pretty bleak. So there are definitely tons of things you can do, right? Co-creating those experiences with your kids because it's another Western problem, but it's a really interesting and it's almost North American specific, although you see it a lot in individualistic countries, is this idea that not only do you need to be a parent, but you also need to be your child's best friend because in a lot of collectivist countries where parental duties can be spread across bigger families, then it becomes more about creating group experiences. And so there isn't this burden of like, I have to be my child's best friend, also their parent, right? You start to, all the roles that you have to play when there's really just all of this one-on-one time does become quite problematic, right? And it's a unique issue here. So what do you do? One, you figure out how to do swaps, right? So like oftentimes you can create that environment that you see in collectivist cultures. Like, hey, you watch our kids so that we can have a date night so that going out, we're not just already have the economic burden of whatever that date is, but then also paying an extra $100 or $200 for childcare, right? Which puts this extra burden on reconnecting with your partner. And then also realizing that if your kid is sitting playing Roblox or Minecraft again, for the 18th time, and you feel this obligation to do it with them, you can dialogue with them and be like, you know what, this isn't fun for me. Let's figure out something that you enjoy, but that's also enjoyable. And again, very pedestrian intervention. You like hear it and go, well, of course that makes sense. But time and time again, it just takes that nudge. Like, yeah, I just watched Naruto or whatever your kid's favorite cartoon is, the movie Frozen or whatever it is for the 20th time. And I just don't enjoy that anymore. Like, let's go off and do something else. So there's That same toolbox can be applied to anything, but especially for parenting, because there's this sense of duty that makes it this burden if that you're not kind of mindful. And again, we'll use those words again, that you have agency and autonomy over how you're spending that time and you can co-create that with your kids. So I wanted to just fill that in so that in case there are parents listening and they're not like, okay, so we're doomed, right? Because this comes from Dan Gilbert. He wrote kind of one of the first books that kicked off the... He's one of the key figures is Marty Seglerman that Cheeks at Me Eye wrote Flow. There's folks that know this space are going to know his name, but he was one of the ones that sort of highlighted because it was his research that parents are some of them, especially Western parents, some of the most unhappy time. They actually call it the U curve of happiness because between 30 and 50 tends to be <laughs> just because of all the things that we have to do. A lot of our time is sacrificed for the betterment of others. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if we can admit that, and it goes back to kind of, I think what we've been talking about the whole time, like accepting that, yeah, some of this isn't that great, but not looking at it with this despair, but realizing that you do have quite a bit more control over how you experience than you think, and that you can really enjoy the moments that are pleasurable and give yourself some grace, no matter what it is, parent or otherwise. It's super interesting for me because I don't have kids and it's a fascinating space to be in as a woman. And the age consideration and the ticking biological clock. And sometimes I think, wow, like, do I want to disturb the life that I've created for myself? (laughs) Like, I don't feel the older I get, the less compelled I am to have children. 
And then sometimes I pause and wonder, well, like just because I hear things like this about it being hard, stressful, maybe less joyful for a period of time, is that truly a reason not to do something? As you've kind of touched upon the human desire to feel pleasure, of course, we're going to go towards it, but does that necessarily mean it's the best choice for us? It's always fascinating to reflect on it. But right now in my current decision, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of glad that I haven't had kids, at least not yet, because maybe I guess hindsight's always interesting though, right? Like who knows? That's the other big lesson is this idea of control and expectations. Certainly you can collect all this information, but I have no idea what it'll be like to have kids because everybody's experience as a parent is so nuanced. But let's pick that apart, especially considering why I was so excited to be on this podcast because we're supposed to get uncomfortable, right? But (laughs) I'm probably going to split the difference with you because I don't want to jump right into that. I think with age, what I've realized is I don't want to have an opinion about an experience that I can't ever approach with empathy because there is a biological component of being a mom that I just don't think males are ever going to truly understand. We can believe that we might, but I don't know what that's like. I don't know what the draw of the biological clock. I think we could draw parallels to hustle culture, right? We believe that this is important. And I think I can admit to an academic understanding of what social norms do to any of us, that there are negative social norms, and that's certainly one. And then my last point on that is that there is a ton of empirical evidence to suggest that you are making the right decision if, because again, it's a sense of duty There's a great book called All Joy, No Fun, because there's going to be a lot of things you can reminisce on, right? But like we know that loss aversion is this fear that we're going to be missing out, right? FOMO or whatever, and any of its context is a powerful force. So what I meant by splitting the difference is the person that put this together, similar to myself or like a Daniel Pink, it's pretty funny. It's Aziz Azaria, you know, the comedian, but I forget if it was a book or just a thesis But he looked at modern dating and he was able to coalesce a lot of interesting science about why relationships don't garner the same amount of pleasure now as they used to, right? And one of the really interesting insights is this idea that it kind of goes back to the science of the paradox of choice is that now that you have apps, I don't know, I'm so old, I forget what they are, right? But Match.com, right? Cupid. And so you now know no matter where you are, that you have access to dating hundreds of people. So no matter who you find, even if they're the most amazing person, if you wanted to do the homework, you could likely find someone a little bit better. And so just knowing that, which is like, again, you could make it as metaphysical as you want, but that's just an objective aspect of reality and modern architecture now is that any of us, even myself, who's been happily married for 20 years, if I wanted to drop everything right now, I likely could find someone a little bit better. And so could she, maybe that would be episodic, right? And then you would regret the decision because relationships are so dynamic. We're obviously talking at the most surface level of lust, right? And not all the complexities of love. And again, whether you look at, we already talked about how benign we make love here in the US with only one word, right? But it's a very complex thing and volumes have been written about it. So the reason that relationships, at least at the onset with regards to hedonic pleasure are more problematic now is that we do have all these options. And so that's just goes back to the angst that you're feeling. Like, 
the what ifs are the things that eat us alive. And so I'm going to wrap all that up in a bow and say like, just another argument to enjoy what's in front of you, especially if it's enough and not worry about, could I have more? If enough isn't enough, right? Like if you're, we'll just use relationships as an example. If you're not happy, you're always in a negative valence state, you're frustrated, and it's clear to you that something's missing, then absolutely do the work. But if you're happy, again, going out and trying to be happier, we know that's the crux to the problem. I thought it was really interesting in the context of dating. I mean, because it makes absolute sense, right? It really does. And I think that's actually a very interesting point to end on as much as we could branch out into all different angles. We are hitting our time for today. And I love that idea of enough and really evaluating what's in front of you because it's an actionable step for someone who's sitting here thinking about their own happiness, joy, fun, their situations, the nuances, because we just get so many mixed messages, as we've also said. It's fascinating that throughout this conversation, Mike, I've just been reflecting on all of the different things that we receive, the the commercials on TV about what makes us happy, the books about happiness. You've referenced so many. I want to read them all. Although maybe I'm just better off reading your book where I imagine you've just cited all of these amazing books. It's like you've compiled <laughs> all this information about fun. So I'm very grateful for that in your deep research. You probably are one of, if not the only guest that's ever referenced that many different sources and cited them properly. I mean, it's really cool, Mike. I love that you do that because it's helpful to have that data versus making it when it's just based on anecdotal evidence. And you're just repeating what other people have said, like Gary Vee saying, don't watch Lost. And you thinking like, that's the way how many people refuse to do those things. In fact, it reminds me and gives me insight into a friend who introduced me to Gary Vee. And he would not do at the time a lot of like activities. He was really into like, I don't have time to do activities, like fun things, hiking even, or going to the movies. Like he just wouldn't be bothered with it. And he shifted over time and now laughs about it. And I wonder like how much was he hearing from people saying like, you can't waste your time doing that stuff. But to your point, Mike, we get pleasure from so many different sources and we need that. We need that autonomy and that time. And I think you've been a wonderful reminder that it's really unique to each of us because we're all so different. I mean, you having ADHD, something I can relate to being neurodivergent and thinking differently than people. Like I can't assume that what works for somebody is going to work for me too. And why feel shame if something's working for me but it doesn't work for somebody else. So thank you for touching upon all of these important points, Mike. It's been a joy and a lot of fun talking with you today. You've embodied all of your research and passions and work. Uh, it was my pleasure. Yeah, it was so much fun for me too. I really enjoyed it. Can't believe that we've gone a whole hour. <laughs> it feels like five minutes. Right, but isn't that to me is exactly what I touched upon earlier. Like I remember as a maybe like, being 10 or 12 with some friends. And we were talking about how quickly time flies by. And 
we collectively decided that we were going to try to have a little less fun so that we could slow down time. We wanted to spend great time with each other so badly, but we were afraid to enjoy it too much because we knew that time would go by so quickly. And that's been such a fascinating experience of life. Some of the best things, they feel fleeting, even if it's a substantial amount of time, this being one of those. It's certainly a cruel master for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So maybe that's something else I'd love to know your research on. Maybe a future blog post of yours is like, is there a way to navigate that experience of time? Is there a balance in which you can kind of slow down time, but also deeply enjoy it? I guess meditation, that's what that's all about, isn't it? Yeah. Mindfulness is similar to gratitude. Again, might be overprescribed at times, but are such useful tools, right? That's why they're like really foundational. We've given pedestrian tactics and then really like entrenched tactics, right? So this is more on the pedestrian level, really interesting mindfulness practices. Like if you really are enjoying yourself, especially in the company of others in a low arousal situation, trying to figure out temporal landmarks, just kind of staring at a picture. So you're slowing down time and trying to remember the details. Because what we know we could go a whole another hour on this because I've really like dug into the neuroscience too. It's not my field, but I've just, I love it so much is that time is experienced by the way we encode information, right? And so the more we can encode of a certain experience, the more time will sort of dilate. And so that is a very useful way. If you feel like, I think I talk about it in the book. I've certainly talked about it in forums like this, but it was one of the best pieces of advice I got for my wedding is that to kind of take mental snapshots like every five to 10 minutes. And so something that was really high arousal would have definitely just, you talk to so many people and they're like, oh, wedding was a whirlwind. I can't even remember it. Because even though we were inebriated and having a great time, it was one of those days like we have no stories of problems, right? Sometimes you often hear of all these, like just everything went right. So it's just the most amazing day. But because I was given that sage advice to use that tactic of mindfulness and Like, oh, yeah, Johnny's here and he's laughing. That's great. Oh, I haven't seen Lisa for a long time. I didn't know that she could dance that well. And so like I have those moments where I took these sort of mental pauses and added rich information to the memory that I can still relive it to this day. And it it slowed down because it was only four hours, probably could have gone in a heartbeat. And then reminiscing on it, having the ability to have, because I've encoded sort of rich memories from it, I can look back at it now and smile at you, you know, still relive it. Want another great piece of advice to end on. I love it. You are full of it. And I'm so grateful for the time you spent with me and offering so much to the listener. I'm so excited to read your book when it comes out. I'm going to be adding that to my upcoming reading list. Are you doing an audiobook version or have you done one? Yes. I haven't recorded it yet. Yeah. Cool. Oh, that's my favorite. I love, especially when I travel. So uh, I'll look forward to listening to your voice, uh, share all of your sage wisdom and experiences in there. And again, I will link to that book in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. So for anyone who wants to not only find Mike's book, The Fun Habit, and pre-order that, but also all the references, I have a wonderful 
team that generally does a fantastic job of linking to any reference. So they're going to have a lot of work to do uh, I'm sorry, in this team. episode. Mike. <laughs> I need to send them a bonus. <laughs> yeah, totally. But how wonderful to have a transcript full of all these links to all these other books you've mentioned. So the listener has a lot of quote homework to do from here that they can go and and continue their journey towards happiness. And just very grateful. So again, that's all at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com in the podcast section. Find this episode. All of that information is there. More links to Mike's work so that you can stay in touch and follow his journey as well. Thanks again, Mike. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.